Good afternoon, it's Monday the 12th of September 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Katie Jo Murphin and uh, David Scott. Well, there's only one story going on at the moment, only one thing going on in the what, world. At the what's moment. that, Mike? Uh, David, what's that? Well, it's at the moment it's 60,000 are bidding farewell to the Queen. I came out to Edinburgh's Royal Mile to bid farewell to the Queen uh, as her funeral procession um, made its way from Balmoral down to Holyrood Palace. Um, the uh, route was lined with uh, people basically the whole way, every lay-by, many of the farmers' fields along the way, uh, and every junction was full of, uh, uh, of people wishing to say their, say their farewells. And the Royal Mile was packed with 60,000 people, as you see in this photograph. And it's only going to get uh, more intense when this gets to London. Uh, the uh, the uh, coffin is to spend uh, 24 hours in St. Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh uh, from 5 o'clock today. And then it's going to be flown down to London. And here we see the Times anticipating what will happen there. They're saying more than three quarters of a million people are expected to descend on Westminster to pay the respects to Queen Elizabeth, with queues extending for up to five miles. And this is just an estimate. It could be many more. It could be many more than a million. Cabinet Office is preparing for the possibility that London will become full for the first time. Contingency plans in place for rail operators to tell passengers not to attempt to travel to the capital. Uh, the government has issued guidance and saying the queues will keep moving. You'll have to stand for a long time, maybe overnight. Uh, you need to bring your own food and refreshments. So it's going to be... Uh, an extremely um, unique time in this country. Um, the the mood of the people attending this is 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 somber and respectful and thoughtful, I think, uh, and definitely affectionate towards the Queen. And um, uh, this is uh, contrast to certain other events we can th think of in the uh, recent and 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 medium past. Um, I have written uh, an article. It's just up. Um, in the last few minutes on the UK column uh, website called A Farewell to Her Majesty the Queen. It's a personal view from, from me uh, looking uh, at uh, how I'm feeling about, about her passing. And uh, some of the elements from that article, I've got a couple of clips uh, to show uh, the, uh, the, the viewers today. The first one is from the Queen's uh, 1957 um Queen's speech, the first, the first speech, uh, Christmas speech, that was televised. And I was struck by this, in part because this is 1957, and you could just about see this on UK column news today. She was trying to raise a certain amount of concern and alarm about the direction the country was taken. Um, and, uh, yeah, this is a very interesting clip. But it's not the new inventions which are the difficulty. The trouble is caused by unthinking people who carelessly throw away ageless ideals as if they were old and outworn machinery. They would have religion thrown aside, morality in personal and public life made meaningless, honesty counted as foolishness, and self-interest set up in place of self-restraint. At this critical moment in our history, we will certainly lose the trust and respect of the world if we just abandon those fundamental principles which guided the men and women who built the greatness of this country 
and Commonwealth. Today, we need a special kind of courage. Not the kind needed in battle, but a kind which makes us stand up for everything that we know is right, everything that is true and honest. David, uh, if I can just uh, say something there. I mean, I think uh, the problem, slight problem that I have with that is that I'm not sure that she did that subsequently. Well, this is, this is what the, the article explores. Um, and one of the points I was making is she did try. Because I, when I started to write the article, I was saying, well, you know, she held these values, but she didn't actually argue for them in public. And when I went to look at the evidence, well, yes, before I was born, she did. Now, later in her life, much less so. Um, but the suggestion I'm making that that's not just because of any failing in the Queen, but because of failing in us all. In the, con in the country, and the sort of reaction that that speech and others received at the time. Uh, more recently, obviously, we've had many, uh, many politicians and, and others talking about the Queen. The, the best of the speeches in the House of Commons was from our former Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Still full of errors, very interesting, but warm and interesting, and, and uh, it shows you why he was, he, he attained the position he attained, because he could capture the mood um, certainly of the House, in a way that few can. Uh, it doesn't make his statements necessarily all that accurate. We have a clip to illustrate the point. Think what we asked of her in that moment, not just to be the living embodiment in, in her DNA of the history and continuity and unity of this country, but to be the figurehead of our entire system, the keystone in the vast arch of the British state. Does he know what our system and, is? And, well, it was quite interesting because during this speech, the point where he, his voice was reduced to a, a, a whisper of, of awe as he was about to talk about something sacred, when he was talking about the vast arch of the, of the state. Um, and this is um, this is the thing that he obviously reveres. Uh, now, I, 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 the point I make in the article is that the the reason that the the British public have the affection they have for the Queen is nothing to do with the vast arch of the British state. In fact, you could take away the, the, that in its entirety, and we would have nothing but benefit. There's a reason that the people respond to the Queen is because she is a human being and because the relationship is a personal one. And this is something that is lost in Parliament and in the great speeches and in the, um, the view that this is all about shoring up a system rather than um, something much more fundamental to us as a people and as a nation that's nothing to do with the system that has been assembled around it over the centuries. Um, the first speech from the King, King uh, Charles III, was very good and almost didn't put a foot wrong. Uh, there was one error that I thought that was very interesting, and it's in this first clip. I know that her death brings great sadness to so many of you, and I share that sense of loss beyond measure with you all. 
When the Queen came to the throne, Britain and the world were still coping with the privations and aftermath of the Second World War, and still living by the conventions of earlier times. In the course of the last 70 years, we have seen our society become one of many cultures and many faiths. The institutions of the state have changed in turn. But through all changes and challenges, our nation and the wider family of realms, of whose talents, traditions, and achievements I am so inexpressibly proud, have prospered and flourished. Our values have remained, and must remain, constant. What are his values? We're coming on to those. Well, th th this, is the, this is the thing, right? Have our values as a people, as a nation, as a, as a, as a, as a commonwealth or a, a company of nations remained constant? I, I would argue that they very much have not, that that's actually the very reverse of what they've done, that, that our values have been like dew on the grass in the morning and it's, it disappears as soon as the sun comes up. I do not think that is true. He may believe it, but I, I don't think this is true. Um, the second clip here, as I say, it was a very good speech, and the second clip here speaks about how he's going to be king. As the Queen herself did with such unswerving devotion, I too now solemnly pledge myself, throughout the remaining time God grants me, to uphold the constitutional principles at the heart of our nation. And wherever you may live in the United Kingdom, or in the realms and territories across the world, and whatever may be your background or beliefs, I shall endeavor to serve you with loyalty, respect, and love, as I have throughout my life. My life will, of course, change as I take up my new responsibilities. It will no longer be possible for me to give so much of my time and energies to the charities and issues for which I care so deeply. But I know this important work will go on in the trusted hands of others. So um, he's going to back off from the campaigning and. Uh, no, no, David, others. that's not and quite what he said, though, is it? Because what he said was he's going to come away from the charities and so on, but that's not, that's, that's a different thing completely, though. No, I don't think that's quite right. I think if you, if you take take what he's saying, that he's saying that the, the constitutional requirements come first and the constitutional principles will be followed. And that was a commitment. That was an oath. That was a promise to us all. And that's one that we should hold him to. Um, the it, it, it's, it's clear that there won't be the same, there won't be campaigning in the way that we've seen in the past. And he's made this quite clear. He was asked directly when he continued campaigning. He said, no, I'm not that stupid. Uh, he realises that the role is entirely different. But the belief systems are still there. The errors are still there. And this is, this is going to be um, a, a potential problem for us. And it's something that I think that we should, be, um, we should be raising with the new king, that the 
For example, the policies of the World Economic Forum, which are impoverishing our nation, are not ones that he has any business in supporting, for example. Um, so uh, we come here briefly just to, to give a, a, a quick advert about the, the article I've written. It's called A Farewell to Her Majesty the Queen. It's uh, quite a long piece. I find it difficult to write because there, is, there, are, many, there are many things and many sometimes conflicting feelings here. Um, and uh, I tried to get this down in, uh, in the clearest and uh, most honest way that I could. Uh, I got a couple of clips just to read to you here. I say at one point, hence my sadness that her passing is mixed with another sadness that she was not more, not a bigger part of my life, not a rallying point for truth in an age of lies, not a leader, never quite the symbol she should have been. And I, I, I finish off with the following. Uh, so Elizabeth was a servant but not a leader, a companion but not a warrior fighting our battles. We must face the fact that the decline we bemoan in our nation is one that we have brought about. We need to repent of our weakness, of our willingness to compromise with corruption, with evil, with lies and with deceit. If these failings are sometimes visible in our sovereign, I suggest that as a reflection in her of the nation as a whole, rather than her unique deficiency. And as we lay her late majesty to rest, let us also lay to rest those weaknesses that we have too long, that have too long characterized us as a people. As we remember her service, let us also remember the absence of strength in the nation which accompanied her reign. Let us each and every one resolve to be weak no more and instead to be warriors for the truth. Let us resolve like the carrier, like the character Mr. Valiant for Truth in Pilgrim's Progress, which the Queen quoted in 1957, so that at the end we can say, my marks and scars I carry with me to be a witness for me that I have fought his battles, who will now be my rewarder. Um, just a couple more points on this at the moment. This is going to dominate uh, the news for certainly weeks and probably months to come. Um, but we have here Alex Bell writing in the Times, the Queen's death won't help the SNP's case for independence. A um, couple of clips from that. He says, however, uh, family history points to the fact that Scotland has always had a monarch and has never had a Republican civil war. What's more, the architect of the modern SNP and his wife Moira really enjoyed their summer trips to Balmoral. Sturgeon had to wear more of a forced smile on royal occasions, but her time is coming to an end. Will the next SNP leader reject the monarchy? Not a chance. Queen Elizabeth was a unifying figure, but her death will not help the SNP. Britain is a very different place today, but the consequences of that are not yet obvious. And I think that last line is very true. I feel something has changed about the nation, and it's going to be some time before we're fully aware as to exactly what that is. Uh, well, you mentioned uh, Charles and the World Economic Forum. Uh, I mentioned it on Friday as well. And I just wanted to, to highlight this because people should remember that it was Charles that uh, launched the Great Reset project uh, with uh, Klaus Schwab. Uh, so this was the Telegraph's coverage of it. Prince Charles to launch Great Reset project to rebuild planet in the wake of the coronavirus. Uh, and it was the image that went with that uh, that, that really uh, was interesting because the, what is this, a, a, a rainbow halo, he's a yeah. saint. Uh, but actually, if you look at what that image is part of, uh, because what was above his head was significantly uh, taller. Uh, so let's just have a look at it. So this is what was above his head. Uh, and uh, well, I mean, people can make their own minds up about this, but, but 
I don't know what that is, Brian. Well, I, I think what I'm looking at is is um, is six 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 is what I think I'm looking at. We can have an interesting debate on that. Why? That's what, what, I, what, that's what I think the graphic is about. Why do they feel the need to stylize things in this way? I mean, obviously, that's the, the those are supposed to be the well, feathers of the Prince of Wales. But why do they feel? I mean, well, <laughs> there's obviously my, my, something else being communicated. My thought about this is that we know nothing about the whole process. We've got the accession uh, assembly. We don't know the individuals that form that assembly. And as we're going to see in a minute, what he said, what he's already said to date. Um, can we actually trust him on it? I, I th I, my comment, David, is that uh, we recognise that there are a lot of people, a lot of people out there who do feel aff affection for the royal family, but it's been that affection and naivety, in my opinion, which has led us to allow the royal family to get away with a great range of things that they never should have got away with. So that fulfils the bid in your article that it's not just a question of pointing a finger at the royalty, we've also got a pointed finger at ourselves. But I think when we dig deeper into this family, there are a lot of questions to be asked. And also, I would say, Brian, one other thing, the concentration in the family is one thing. It's not, the family is not the monarch, right? There is no, there is no unique position for a family member. They're, they're, they're well, ultimately... But the, 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 they're not in any sort of unique position with the rest of the country. Right, but then the, we, David, the, we it's the it's the monarch. It's the monarch that has a special position. Then we can't have it both ways because if the monarch is there, and it is simply down to the monarch, then when the fin finger gets pointed, we have to point to the monarch. When I had the dubious pleasure of meeting the Queen in 1992, I think it was. While I was uh, talking to her, she was reassuring me that at this all-Royal Navy event, she felt she was amongst friends. But of course, the reality was in the background, she was busy signing away her, her kingdom uh, under mediatization with the European Union. And this, of course, was being done in secret uh, with her uh, personal secretaries. And the average member of the public had no idea what was going on. So... When I reflected on that meeting, when she appeared very nice, very pleasant, very calm, uh, my feeling was that she was absolutely duplicitous in what she said to me as, as, as against what was happening in the background. But I do understand that there are a very, very large number of people out there that do feel something at the passing of the Queen. But I wonder whether a large part of it is that they feel that this is their losing something about the whole uh, what do we call it, the culture of this nation. The Queen dying, they've got a sense that this is more of, of what it is to live in this country that is dying. But maybe, maybe I haven't I, quite got I, that right. I don't, I, don't think that's, I don't think that's correct. I don't think that's the tone or the feeling in the country. I think you're seeing something else happening. I think you're seeing something that is, in, that is a little bit of the country remembering who it is. It's a little bit of the country regaining some sense of who we are. Um, and I think that is a process that's going to, that's going to pick up pace. And I don't think that it's, um, this is a, a matter of simple nostalgia. I think there's something much deeper, much more fundamental is happening than that. 
Okay, well, uh, just want to uh, briefly put this on screen. Uh, this is the dossier on uh, Substack, uh, dossier Substack. Uh, and the headline is the World Economic Forum King Ascends to the British Throne. And uh, very uh, positive uh, and uh, uh, opening paragraph about Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, but then the article goes on to say that her successor, on the other hand, uh, can best be understood as the World Economic Forum King. Um, and uh, well, I suggest that people read that and make up their own minds. Uh, but we just wanted to uh, show a quick clip here from uh, COP26 uh, with what Prince Charles said at that. So, ladies and gentlemen, my plea today is for countries to come together to create the environment that enables every sector of industry to take the action required. We know this will take trillions, not billions of dollars. We also know that countries, many of whom are burdened by growing levels of debt, simply cannot afford to go green. Here we need a vast military-style campaign to marshal the strength of the global private sector. With trillions at its disposal, far beyond global GDP, and with the greatest respect, beyond even the governments of the world's leaders, it offers the only real prospect of achieving fundamental economic transition. And I have to say that that probably sums up uh, my difficulty with this whole thing, because whether or not uh, the new king is making a claim in his first speech that he's going to pull back from the public campaigning, it's, in my view, based on the strength and the vehemence in that particular presentation, that's only pulling back from the public-facing uh, commentary and comments that he makes. And it does concern me greatly, David, that we now have a head of, head of state who's arguing for, uh, for corporates that are bigger than nations. Yes, and you're right to be concerned, absolutely, because there's not a, there's not a word in that that was accurate. There's not a word in that, if, if actually rolled out, would result in anything other than tyranny. Um, that you're talking about fundamental um, uh, economic misunderstanding of how the world actually works, of what economics is, of how we how we actually uh, through um, you know free market systems, laissez-faire systems, actually serve one another, and and this idea that it requires a a military-like approach, b uh, vast sums from uh, from from corporations, and not simply the cooperation, voluntary cooperation of all the people on earth. Um, that it it requires some um, some strong hand from some place to make it happen, because it wouldn't otherwise happen, is is fundamentally in error, and it is extremely dangerous. Uh, but uh, more than that. I mean, uh, people in the chat box are, are suggesting or using the uh, word fascism uh, and I'm just being... Green interested. fascism. Yes, green fascism. And, and really, is that appropriate? Yeah, I, and I, I would... Yes, absolutely it is. Fa I mean, fascism is a system where you have nominal private ownership, but all the decisions are actually made by the state through regulation and other controls. And the state allows the compliant private owners to become very, very wealthy. And they, in turn, 
um, help um, advance certain people within the state. That's, that's the nature of the fascist regime. It is one where the state picks the winners and the rest of you have to do what you're told. Um, and it, it, incidentally, it fails. It's much more effective than communism, but it does fail. It falls apart because it doesn't work as a system. It will eventually, you, you eventually, like all socialist systems, you eventually run out of other people's money, and that happens there too. Um, and then the solution in fascist system is normally war. The idea that this is a solution, that, that, that the, the great and the good are going, to, are going to lead us to the sunlit up ones of plenty via these sorts of ideas is, is green fascism. This is, this is a correct analysis and a correct criticism. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, I'd, I thought I'd take a closer look at uh, King Charles III. Um, a number of graphics from the BBC all with him um, against a very a black background. In fact, this image fascinated me. I don't know whether it has been photoshopped with the BBC, but it was the eyes that caught me because I immediately thought I was looking at Tony Blair. But the headline, King Charles III, the new monarch, uh, I think we need to add something here because this man, in my opinion, is utterly duplicitous in everything that he has done and everything that he says. And if we just take a few things, he's an adulterer. He betrayed his uh, marriage to Diana. Um, that is public record, and it says something about the man. He's prepared to betray his marriage. He's prepared, in my opinion, to betray his country, but perhaps I'm wrong. He's supposedly a Christian, but he's belittled his role uh, of defender of the faith. There is no question of that, although we are going to see in a minute that he's attempting to backtrack. And he's a green Christian, if there can be such a thing, which I suggest not, who's promoting the Schwab Great Reset. And that is over and above the interests of his own two kingdom nation states. So he's, he's making declarations as to what he's going to do, because that's what he has to do in order to assume power. But the reality is that his masters are something very different. And I'm also going to say he's a green Christian who presides over immense wealth and land and delivers little arms to his people. I have not been seeing Prince Charles out on the street doing anything productive for the homeless and the needy. But if we can just return to the, uh, who said it? Well, exactly. Sorry, there's a little bit of a typo on that slide, which is going to amuse me. But I just wanted to say that um, when he was talking there, he's talking trillions um, I thought it said his disposal, but it's probably its, with trillions at its disposal. So we've got a man who is clearly very happy with the idea that the world is going to be controlled by globalists with trillions having more power than the average nation state. And I think now we're getting into this man's mindset, which is that the global economic transition is more important to him than Christian love and charity, which is what he is trying to have us believe as he's uh, taking up post as king. So what sort of man is he? Well, he's a man who's happy to accept suitcases full of money, um, not on one occasion, but three occasions. Of course, there's no suggestion that anything in the payments were illegal. Uh, but nevertheless, if we were to take um, donations of suitcases of money, I wonder how uh, long it would be before the boys in blue were, were knocking at the door. But not to worry, because this is Prince Charles, the odd suitcase full of money, 
uh, is not really a problem. And this one I didn't know about, but I found it fascinating. It's from Cornwall Live. It says Prince Charles Duchy estate makes millions from Cornwall's dead. And due to a very old uh, rule, bona vacantia, if I pronounce that correctly, um, if you uh, uh, die without a will, uh, instead of it going to the government of UK, this money was going to go, is going to go into the coffers of the Duchy estate, which William will no doubt be happy about. And if we want to know what sort of money we're talking about in the Duchy estate, well, it's over one billion pounds. So I'm, I'm going to say, David, I find that when we start to look at the man in action, I find it very difficult to understand how this man is going to go from his background over the years to date to suddenly becoming uh, King Charles III and suddenly he's going to start doing his job. I'm going to suggest to you he's duplicitous and he's not going to do his job as sovereign. Well, you're assuming he doesn't believe this stuff. That he's duplicity would be implying he doesn't believe what he's spouting. I, I, I think he believes it. I, I just I, think he's David, fundamentally and profoundly wrong. David, I, I'm sure he believes what he's spouting because, as he's busy talking about um, protecting the planet, he's been using, amongst other things, the duchy uh, to force in supermarkets on land in Cornwall, which nobody wanted. So every angle we come in at this man it is duplicity he says one thing he claims one thing he does the exact opposite and it's very keen it's very obvious that he's absolutely keen on wealth wealth is what wealth and privilege is what drives this man uh, but let's come to this article which i found just this morning archbishop cranmer uh, the witness of events where the people gather and what was he picking up on? Well, he was picking up on this. Uh, let's read it out. King Charles III, defender of the faith. It really ought to be a big story because it is a big story. And yet, because it's prosaic continuity, nobody has really noticed. But at the Accession Council on Saturday, the 10th, 2022, the newly proclaimed King Charles III was also proclaimed defender of the faith. And in that article, there was a full transcript of that particular uh, uh, part of the swearing in. Uh, let's just do it very quickly. I, Charles III, by the grace of God of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and my other realms and territories, uh, King, defender of the faith, do faithfully promise and swear that I shall inviolably maintain and preserve the settlement of the true Protestant religion. I won't do the rest of it, but uh, the slides there on, on screen. But of course, over the years, David, this is the last thing this man has done. He has done everything possible to uh, undermine uh, Protestantism in UK. And part of the, the uh, means he's used to do that is showing his support to the Church of England, run by a certain Mr. Welby, who is also very keen on sitting with the trillions of of pounds for the bankers while drinking champagne at the World Economic Forum. at the World Economic Forum. Thank <laughs> you. Mike. Yeah, and we could have a longer discussion perhaps later about the state of Protestantism in the UK. Exactly, uh, lacking any any support from the Queen or indeed Charles himself. But of course, it's worse than that, isn't it? Because it was not so long ago 
that the country was focused on his relationship with Jimmy Savile. And of course, this wasn't coming from one source. It was coming from a number of sources. So this is the Scottish Daily Express. And what a telling photograph. Um, what was being said here, we wonder. Mm. Uh, of course, we'll never know, but uh, I'm going to suggest that this image said it all, that the power was with Jimmy Savile. And of course, it took the column to really pull some of this stuff apart when we started to just put the number of people that were connected with this man who apparently had no idea of what he was doing. Uh, they all said they were caught completely unawares by the fact that uh, uh, he'd been involved in the abuse of children. So nobody, uh, including the royal family and Prince Charles, as he was at the time, uh, knew that Savile was a problem. Um, I find this just untenable, David, untenable. This man, Jimmy Savile, was so close to Charles, and yet Charles had no inkling of what was going on. Well, I mean, it, it, it is it is untenable, I think, that, that the security forces surrounding the, the, the royals and the government and the prime ministers didn't have an an inkling that 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 what was going on was going on. And surely, surely, special branch and co would have known. I find that very difficult to um, to to um, understand. The yeah. the individual deception of an individual person that's maybe more that's 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 maybe more believable. But there was so much information circulating. And it should have been picked up by organisations that are there simply to collect that information. I don't understand how it was missed, no. Uh, well, I'm, I'm going to suggest it was deliberately missed, which puts a very different spin on what was actually happening. Um, but I decided to have a little look at the Prince's Trust uh, just to get a feel for uh, what that was saying. Well, of course, there was a notice that everything had changed from the Prince's Trust. Uh, but when I was looking at the website, I was fascinated by this, the Fairbridge Society, which I'd never heard of before. So I went and had a little look. Uh, it says it was established in 1909 by Kingsley Fairbridge, who set up a charity to offer opportunities for children and young people from the UK, uh, primarily in Australia and Canada. Um, well, OK, that sounds uh, interesting. Uh, we then had um, some text about the Prince's Trust relationship with Fairbridge. During 2010, the trustees of Fairbridge approached the Prince's Trust to consider a merger, as you do. They must be quite capable people to approach, um, as it was Prince Charles and, uh, and the Prince's Trust. Um, so that um, moved on. The merger took place and eventually Fairbridge was dissolved. And so uh, that was completed on the 31st of March, 2012. Well, if we come forward a bit, uh, on the 12th of March, 2015, the Home Secretary established the ICSA Child Abuse Inquiry. And the next minute was that uh, questions were being asked about Fairbridge itself and its role in child migration. And uh, this also uh, came into uh, matters to do with the Scottish Child Abuse Inquiry. Uh, so why are we interested in this? Well, let's look at some of the statements from the uh, Prince's Trust. This is Dame Martina Milburn. 
And uh, she actually, um, sorry, the Prince's Trust Group CEO wrote to the chair of ICSRA on the 4th of July, upon hearing the accounts of those who experienced abuse on child migration programs. In that correspondence, Dame Martina expressed a sincere apology on behalf of the trust to all those who had experienced abuse and condemned all forms of child abuse. The apology was repeated by Dame Martina in the evidence she gave publicly to ICSA on the 12th of July 2017. This apology is a public statement and is available on the ICSA's website. Well, let's look at the sort of thing she said. The trust condemns all forms of child abuse and is very supportive of ICSA and SCAI and their objectives. Although the Prince's Trust has never had any involvement in child migration schemes, the Trust remains committed to find ways to support the victims and survivors of the Fairbridge Society. The Trust believes that one of the ways it can assist the victims and survivors of the child migration programmes and their families is by ensuring that, ensuring that the Fairbridge Society archive is preserved and made available to them. So you've been abused or badly treated, and we're going to help you by making sure that you've got available to the records, which presumably demonstrate as, as that was happening. And uh, uh, since Dame Martina reiterated the removal of the access restrictions in her evidence to ICSA, the Trust has helped over 200 former child migrants or their family members with access to their individual records. So... David, just to throw this one back to you, what due diligence do you think the Prince's Trust did about Fairbridge before it accepted a merger? I've no idea. I wouldn't know, even know where you would start with that one. Uh, I would refer people to um, David Hill's book, The Forgotten Children, that describes uh, exactly the experience of uh, over a thousand children who went to uh, Australia via this organisation and the, and the abuse they suffered and they shouldn't be forgotten anymore. Right. Well, I'm just going to leave on the note that, of course, the Prince's Trust uh, was the, uh, uh, what's the word, prodigy of, of now the king who says that he's going to look after the interests of this country. And I'm going to strongly suggest to the audience today, I don't think that is going to happen. Right. Let's just very quickly move on. Uh, Last week, uh, uh, the ONS published the latest all-cause mortality statistics and another week, uh, hardly a surprise, of excess mortality that nobody seems very concerned about, uh, 1,556 ex excess deaths above the five-year average. Uh, and that comes at the same time that NHS England was releasing uh, its latest data on a and &E attendances and emergency admissions. Um, so they're saying 6.84 million people on the waiting lists that's a record number. Uh, three in 10 people waiting longer than four hours to get into A&E in August, while ambulance crews continuing to struggle and so on. The Royal College of Nursing uh, responding to the uh, latest NHS England performance data uh, saying both routine and uh, emergency care are facing incredible demands with the waiting list for routine operations rising to yet another all-time high. Uh, and the dangerous circle where the delays in one part of the system impact on another is as significant as ever. 28,756 patients are waiting more than 12 hours to, to be admitted into hospital from A&E, more than 10 times uh, this time last year, and nearly 7 million people now waiting for routine treatment. Uh, it just continues to get worse, and nobody seems to be very concerned about it at all.
Not to worry, the king's going to sort it out, Mike. Uh, and then very briefly, uh, just talking about economic growth then, more ONS statistics uh, just released today. The latest uh, GDP figures, uh, real GDP fell by uh, an estimated 0.1% in quarter two, April to June, uh, and it's now estimated to be 0.6% above its pre-coronavirus level. So the absolute decimation of the last two years in ter terms of the economy, uh, at least uh, in terms of GDP, has brought it to roughly the same level that it was two years ago. But uh, what they say is that for quarter two, 2022, GDP estimates are subject to more uncertainty than usual as a result of challenges that the UNS faced estimating GDP in the current financial conditions. So uh, they say 0.6% higher than two years ago. Maybe, maybe not. Was it zero, minus 0.1% or was it worse than that? We've no way of knowing. Uh, because uh, it's, they've basically taken a guess at this point. I'm not blaming them in any way for that. It's, it's uh, tricky conditions, but that's where we are. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, David, uh, what, in an effort to deal with uh, uh, rising cost of living, uh, Nicola Sturgeon has decided to freeze rents in Scotland? Yes, because what could go wrong with that? So the Telegraph reports here that she freezes rents in a war on Scottish landlords. There's hardly a person in Scotland that Nicola hasn't declared war on at some stage. Um, so it's an emergency rent freeze in Scotland, a temporary ban on evictions to protect tenants during the cost of living crisis. So it's it, from Nicola's point of view, it's, it's easy vote-getting um, virtue signalling. The freeze on rents and eviction ban will come into force immediately in both private and social rental sectors and expected to last until at least March the 31st next year. Incidentally, I point out that the social sector tends to put up its rents on April the 1st every year. So the fact that the um, the, the the ban on increases last to March the 31st is really only going to affect the private sector. Uh, we don't have to, the power, she said, we don't have the power to stop your energy bills from soaring, but we can and will take action to ensure your rents will not rise. Yes, she can ensure that the rents will not rise, but she can't ensure that the rental property will still be there and she can't ensure that it will be well maintained. This is a problem. So we've got here a, a response from property118.com, uh, which says Scotland's rent freeze will see landlord, landlords remove their properties. Um, and um, uh, they continue, one leading industry expert says Scotland's move could see Rent controls mark the end of the private rental sector as we know it. Landlords will be removing the vacant properties from the rental market. John Blackwood, chief executive of the Scottish Association of Landlords, said, since rumours of this announcement broke, I have been inundated by landlords saying they will be removing their vacant properties from the rental market. I don't blame them. Who on earth is going to let a property in the knowledge that they will, they will be unable to meet their own financial and maintenance obligations if the tenants don't pay the rent or their outgoings increase? So this is um, uh, something that people keep trying. It's been tried recently in Ireland. Let's see how that's going. Uh, we've got the journal.ie. Uh, rents are up 10% and out of control as properties available hit an all-time low. Now, this is back in February. They were saying there was just 1,397 homes available to rent nationwide in the whole of Ireland. The last figure I saw was below 700 houses for rent in the whole of the country. 
Uh, when looking to rent a property in Ireland, you must know whether or not you're dwelling in a rent pressure zone. So a wee bit more on that. Uh, we have here from Hogan Solicitors in Ireland. What's a rent pressure zone? Well, it's a zone that's defined by the government. And in this zone, uh, rents are capped um, and cannot increase by more than the general rate of inflation or 2% a year, whichever is the lower. So if you've got 12% inflation as a landlord, you can only put your rents up 2%. So we know where that goes. Landlords into bankruptcy, property's no longer on the market, property's no longer being maintained, and horrible relationships between landlords and tenants. It's happened so many times before. We see here the Mises Institute writing about it, uh, the unintended consequences of rent control. They ask, suppose you wish to destroy a city, should you bomb it or would it be sufficient to impose rent control? It's a bracing question at first, but some economists uh, have argued that the two are roughly equivalent. When the price of rent is held below the market clearing level, shortages emerge and the housing stock rapidly deteriorates. Um, so which is worse, rent control or bombs? Uh, on the Mises Institute website, uh, economist Joe Salerno has a video lecture on prices in which he offers a compelling visual exercise. He shows his audience pictures of destroyed urban areas and asks whether these areas have been subject to rent control or have been subject to bombing. It's not easy to tell, but the lack of difference suggests a tragic but predictable irony. When a city is bombed, it is destroyed by people with evil intentions. When a city is subjected to rent control, it is destroyed by people with good intentions. And we finish off this with Glasgow's statue to uh, Mary Barber, who led the rent strike uh, during the First World War and in initiated rent control in Glasgow. And she is the reason that the Glasgow I remember as a small boy was a sea of rubble. And uh, rather than her name being mud as it should be, they've made a statue to her, although the statue does show everyone going down a slippery slope, so maybe that's appropriate. Yeah, okay. Thank you for that, David. Okay, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. You can pick something up at the uh, UK Column shop, which is shop.ukcolumn.org. Um, but in any case, do please share our material on the various platforms. Uh, very, very quickly, uh, Ukraine, uh, weapons to Ukraine, here we go. Uh, the UK continues to uh, ship copious quantities of weapons to Ukraine. And uh, here is uh, George uh, Allison from Defence uh, Journal uh, tweeting this out uh, last night. Uh, as most of us were signed asleep, a British C-17 transport aircraft that delivered weapons and supplies to Ukraine via Poland. British weapons flights the first taking, over, uh, taking off before the invasion uh, continue to supply Ukraine with weapons uh, with which to fight Russian forces. And just remind you that uh, in July, we mentioned this, but uh, the UK to send scores of artillery guns and hundreds of drones to Ukraine. This uh, trafficking of weapons continues. Well, we're at war with we're with at Russia. war with with Russia. There's yes. no question of this. We we are at war with Russia. Um, we'll do uh, more work on this on Wednesday, but just a, a little bit of an update today. Of course, over the weekend, uh, momentous events. Um, so the BBC here: Russians outnumbered eight to one in Ukrainian offensive, and it is true that the Ukrainians uh, managed to put a capable offensive together. And as a result of that, they made considerable territorial gains. Uh, we'll have a look at a map in a minute. 
the response to that was that the Russians have hit a very high percentage of, of Ukrainian power stations and that caused massive outages in the country. But if we just put that one back on screen, please, the bit to add at the top is that uh, the West has achieved its war aims with the bloody sacrifice of Ukrainians, because of course what the BBC and the other Western media are not talking about is the huge losses that the Ukrainians have suffered in order to carry out an offensive to please the West so that they would give more weapons and munitions. Uh, but the numbers of uh, Ukrainian dead and wounded, uh, I understand, well into the higher thousands. And of course, we know that uh, hospitals have been inundated with uh, injured men from the battlefield, uh, requests for blood going out in, in large areas of Ukraine. Uh, but these men have died, have been injured in order to fulfill the West's agenda to take control of Ukraine. So with the destruction of the power uh, systems in Ukraine now, Ukraine is no longer functioning as a country. Uh, we have, in a way, with a certain irony, David, we've got a Ukraine that's uh, now looking like the uh, city of rent controls. Mm. And of course, this is all under the uh, control of the West. Um, if we bring this map on screen, there are a number of reporters. I've used Defence Politics Asia. Sometimes he can be a little bit flippant, but he gives very calm, measured, simple overviews. Uh, this is the map from a few hours ago. And if you look at the top, uh, you can see here that uh, around Kharkiv, um, the Ukrainians forced the Russians, well, mainly allied Ukrainians, allied Ukrainians with the Russians, uh, back away from the city. And this is, of course, um, got everybody very excited in the West. Uh, but the Russians also have done exactly what they did before, which is decided they're going to withdraw. And if you remember last time that happened, uh, they then subsequently advanced again. Uh, but what are the Russians to do? Uh, because Britain and the West pumping in the arms and effectively uh, Russia is now faced with a hostile state uh, up to its borders, um, but it hasn't yet declared war. Mm. I wonder whether that will happen. This is the reality of the Russian strikes. Now, this is just an overview map showing you the power stations in Ukraine, the black ones and the nuclear sites, excuse me, <clears throat> uh, but it's mainly on the uh, conventional power plants in the east of the country that the Russians carried out their strikes. And uh, as you'll see, if we play a little bit of the footage here on screen, um, just uh, tremendous devastation, not only to bigger power plants, but also to local power plants in individual cities. And as a result, most of Ukraine uh, over the weekend was blacked out. And at one stage, few, if any, trains were running because all the trains are, uh, are dependent on electricity. So a huge amount of damage. This one you can freeze on screen to have a read. It's a summary as to what happened in those attacks. Uh, but it's quite clear that uh, Russia must be thinking now what do they have to do in order to secure their borders when, of course, uh, UK, the Americans and the EU are pumping in weapons with the result that uh, tragically very brave Ukrainian soldiers are dying? 
Um, so let's uh, bring Katie Joe on the program at last and uh, we'll talk about uh, the uh, propaganda around uh, Ukraine at the moment. And well, obviously, if you want propaganda, you've got to bring some aging rock stars on screen. Uh, so Pink Floyd uh, re reuniting to release uh, a, a song in support of Ukraine. Well, this was back in April. They released Hey, Hey, Rise Up, which sampled a vocal performance from a Ukrainian musician, Andriy uh, Kilinuk. Uh, this was their first piece of music uh, in 28 years and was in support of the relief efforts in Ukraine. Fillmore, in a press statement, said, We want to raise funds for humanitarian charities and raise morale. We want to express our support for Ukraine and in that way show the most of the world uh, thinks that it is totally wrong for a superpower to invade the independent democratic country that Ukraine has become. But this isn't how every member feels, or should I say previous original member. So we have Nick Mason, he's still a member of the band and he has chosen to remain silent uh, with his views on this. But Roger Waters, who left the band in 1985, has been, as he always is, incredibly outspoken and honest with his views on the war in Ukraine. And in an article in uh, WSWS, they point out that none of the mainstream media articles bothered to report in any detail the statements Waters has made about the crisis in Ukraine, only Gilmore's side. So it goes on to read a reply Waters wrote to a 19-year-old fan. On March the 9th, Waters wrote, I regret that Western governments are fueling the fire that will destroy your beautiful country by pouring arms into Ukraine instead of engaging in the diplomacy that will be necessary to stop the slaughter. Sadly, however, Waters continues, many world leaders are gangsters and my disgust for political gangsters did not start last week with Putin. I was disgusted by the gangsters and I was and still am disgusted by the gangster government of Israel's invasion of Palestine in 1967. Yeah, I won't be there. But in just over a week, uh, just over a week ago on Sunday the fourth, Waters actually published an open letter. To called it, "Did you exchange a walk-on part in the war for a lead role in a cage?" This is a line from one of Pink Floyd's most famous songs, "Wish You Were Here," one of my favourites. Um, and I love Roger Waters' explanation of this line in the song. He said he wrote that line. It's to encourage myself not to accept a lead role in a cage, but to go on demanding of myself that I keep auditioning for the walk-on part in the war, because that's where I want to be. I want to be in the trenches. I want to be at the headquarters. I don't want to be sitting in a hotel somewhere. I want to be engaged. So the open letter reads, Dear Mrs. Zelenska, my heart bleeds for you and all the Ukrainian and Russian families devastated by the terrible war in Ukraine. I am in Kansas City, USA. I have just read a piece on bbc.com apparently taken from an interview you have already recorded for a programme called Sunday with Laura Kunzberg, which is to be broadcast on the BBC today, September 4th. bbc.com quotes you as saying that if support for Ukraine is strong, the crisis will be shorter. Hmm, I guess that might depend on what you mean by support for Ukraine. If by support for Ukraine you mean the West continuing to supply arms to Kiev's government's armies, I fear you may be tragically mistaken. Throwing fuel in the form of armament into the fire, firefight has never worked to shorten a war in the past, and it won't work now, particularly because in this case, most of the fuel is A, B, 
being thrown into the fire from Washington DC, which is at a relatively safe distance from the conflagration, and B, because the fuel throwers have already declared an interest in the war going on for as long as possible. I fear that we, and by we I mean people like you and me who actually want peace in Ukraine, who don't want the outcome to be that you have to fight for the last Ukrainian life and possibly even, if the worst comes to the worst, for the last human life. If we instead wish to achieve a different outcome, we may have to seek a different route and that route may lie in your husband's previously stated good intentions. Yes, I mean the platform upon which he is so laudably, so laudably ran for the office of president of Ukraine, the platform upon which he won his historic landslide victory in the democratic election in 2019. He stood on the elected election platform of the following promises to end the civil war in the East and bring peace to the Donbass and partially um, and partial autonomy to Donetsk and Lunsak, sorry, Lunask, and to ratify and implement the rest of the body of Minsk II agreement. One can only assume that your husband's electoral policies didn't sit well with certain political factions in Kiev, and that those factions persuaded your husband to diametrically change course, ignoring the people's mandate. Sadly, your old man agreed to those totalitarian of the people and the forces of extreme nationalism that had lurked malvolent in the shadows and since then ruled the Ukraine. They have also since then crossed any number of red lines that had been set out quite clearly over a number of years by your neighbours, the Russian Federation. And in consequence, they, the extreme nationalists, have set your country on the path to this disastrous war. I won't go on. If I'm wrong, please help me understand how. If I'm not wrong, please help me in my honest endeavours to persuade our leaders to stop the slaughter, the slaughter which serves only the interest of the ruling classes and extreme nationalists, both here in the West and in the Ukraine. And in fact, ordinary people everywhere, all over the world, might it not be better to demand the implement implementation of your husband's election promises and to put an end to this deadly war? And I have been a huge fan of Pink Floyd for 30 years, and it's wonderful to hear Roger Waters do what he does best, writing his truth about the world. And I would love to see and hear him write some more music about these troubled times that uh, humanity is facing. Uh, and uh, we can't forget that, of course, Roger Waters has now been put on the uh, hit list um, that uh, other uh, many, many, many other people are on uh, in Ukraine, funded by the uh, U.S., uh, Congress and absolutely supported by the Ukrainian government. Uh, and uh, uh, if you remember Alexander Duggan's daughter uh, blown up a couple of weeks ago, uh, her photograph on that website now carries the word eliminated. Yeah, I, I've just got to say, Katie Joe, what, what a really well thought out letter uh, because he's encapsulated everything extremely well. And uh, there's a motion in there as well. But I mean, to uh, listen to that letter today after the events of the weekend and the sheer horror of what we in Britain have all helped create uh, in Ukraine, it's appalling and it needs to stop. Um, do you think Liz, Liz Truss is the lady to do this or perhaps our new king? What do you think, Katie Joe? Do you think they'll be standing up for peace? I... I can only hope, like everybody else, that they will see um, where this is going. And uh, But I mean, you know, 
uh, the king. I'm just about to call him Prince Charles. Um, the king, as you've as you've, as you've just you know pulled apart earlier on in the show. Um, I don't know whether his allegiances lie with 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 uh, with Great Britain. I, I don't know. I think he's, he's they may lie with the World Economic Forum, and if that's the case, then we are in serious trouble. Yeah. Um, I'm going to offer a shorter answer to that, and that is no. And the reason is, uh, just to give an example, now let's put uh, Simon Hill on screen here. This is not someone who I would, uh, in terms of uh, if I was an activist, I would not be aligned necessarily with his views, and in fact, not at all. But anyway, he considers himself a left-wing Christian author and activist. Uh, he's uh, very much protesting on green issues and so on. Uh, and he writes uh, on this blog, uh, Bright Green, Independent Media for Radical Democratic Green Movements. Um, and uh, well, this is the headline. I was arrested after asking who elected him at the proclamation of King Charles. Uh, so let's just have a look at some of this. So he was saying he wasn't intending to protest that day. Uh, he went to church uh, yesterday and he learned that there was a proclamation in Oxford, but that the procession uh, which uh, came with the proclamation was about to start from outside his church. Uh, and uh, then uh, it made progress along the pavement. I asked the police how I could get across to the other side of the road, which was closed off when I expressed mild criticism of the royal procession during my question about the road closures. Uh, they became, that's the police, became defensive and refused to talk to me further. Someone who had heard me came over to challenge my views, but the police told us not to talk to each other. Uh, I have no idea on what basis the police stop people with different views from having a discussion. Uh, I'm uh, sorry, it was only when they declared uh, Charles to be King Charles III that I called out who elected them. I doubted, I doubt most people in the crowd heard me. Uh, two or three people near me told me to shut up. I didn't insult them or attack them personally, but responded by saying uh, that a head of state was being imposed on us without our consent. Um, as the police led me away because he was then arrested, uh, I heard them asking, I heard people asking them why I was being arrested. Eventually, I realized that, that two men were walking along beside them, demanding answers about it. I heard one of them say, I don't agree with him, but surely he's got a right to his views. Isn't this a free country? Or similar words. Uh, these two people, not activists, not anti-monarchy. Uh, we're giving a fine example of excellent citizenship by speaking up when they saw the police abusing their powers. I have no idea who they were, but their actions really cheered me. Uh, and then he went on to try to find out why he'd been arrested because he hadn't been told. And then he said, at first I was told that the sergeant who'd arrested me would know the reason. Uh, this was an appalling answer. Eventually on the way home, I was told I'd been arrested under the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Act 2022, brackets the outrageous act passed earlier this year, for actions likely to lead to harassment or distress. Uh, what other freedoms, he asks, can be suppressed in the name of monarchy? Uh, who else will be arrested under the vile Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Act? I'm relatively lucky. I will not be sacked from my job as a result of being arrested uh, or experience some of the consequences that others may face if fear of arrest deters people from expressing their views. Then these vile laws and draconian atmosphere will have significantly reduced free expression and harmed democracy whether or not people are charged. Um, so he's uh, been released uh, or de-arrested at this point, but he could be brought back for charge later on. Uh, and he asks, uh, well, he asks a question, what other freedoms can be suppressed? Now, I'm going to dis disagree with him. It's not in the name of monarchy in this case, uh, because it wasn't the monarch that did this, although the Queen did give royal assent to this act. It was Parliament that did this. Uh, and just remind everybody what other bills and acts are in place already. Uh, you can read those on screen. That's not a definitive list, um, but we already are starting to see the effects of 
some of this legislation. Um, very briefly, David, uh, I, I wouldn't be a fan of, of uh, this person's uh, political position or his ca campaigning, uh, but he has the right to say what he uh, needs to say in order to make a point. And to be arrested in this way uh, seems to offer some support for the idea that this legislation is going through at the moment is really pretty draconian. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and this is this is what we've been um, laboring under for years now. I mean, during the during the COVID lockdown, how many people saying things which we would agree with were arrested? Um, how many people were intimidated by the police? How many people were harassed by the police? How many people were charged and fined and all the rest of it? And it was all wrong. And we have to maintain that principle when it's people we don't agree with. We have to be able to say, yeah, I think you're completely wrong in that. But you shouldn't be arrested for saying it because that's not who we are. That's not the nature of this country. You should be free to say whatever you wish to say with the absolute minimum of restraint, the absolute minimum of restrictions. Uh, you can't you can't encourage people to commit a crime, um, but b beyond that, um, you can share your opinions freely, however much I disagree with them. And this is why I don't I don't agree that we should be we we should be silencing anyone for the political views. I don't care if they're a commie, if they're a Nazi, or what they are. Right? If you think if they think their views are are right and are prepared to stand up and try and defend them. Um, I'll take the other side of the argument and we'll, we'll have a discussion. It's, it, and this is what the people in the crowd there that that man was describing were willing to do. The police had no business getting involved in that. Yes, indeed. So if we just put that uh, graphic back on screen again, the last item on that list is the schools bill, Kitty Jo. The schools bill, yes. It's, uh, um, well, I'm going to start, I'll, I'll come on to the schools bill in a second, but I'm going to start with this article that, um, that, that was in the Daily Mail online. Um, Enoch Burke, a school teacher, was arrested last week for breaching a court order. The order barred him from teaching or being present at his Westmeath school. Uh, the dispute began over his refusal to address a transitioning student as they, rather than he, as requested by the student and their parents in May. He was later suspended and refused to stay away from the school. After the ruling, Mr Burke said, I love my school with its motto, res non verba, actions not words, but I'm here today because I said I would not call a boy a girl. He is a Christian teacher who has said he will not give up his Christian beliefs and he, and he refused to use gender neutral pronouns for a student and so has been sent to Mount Joy Prison for contempt of court. He was suspended on the day before the start of term, pending the outcome of the disciplinary disciplinary process, but he refused to remain away from the school on paid leave for that suspension. The court heard and would sit in an empty classroom, declaring that he was there to work. Mr Burke told Judge Quinn, I am a teacher and I want, don't want to go to prison. I want to be in my classroom today. That's where I was this morning when I was arrested. He said he loves his students to whom he teaches German, history and politics, as well as debating. He added, transgenderism is against my Christian belief. It is contrary to the scriptures, contrary to the ethos of the Church of Ireland and of my school. Referring to this suspension, Mr Burke said it is extraordinary and re 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 sorry, reprehensible, re reprehensible sorry, that someone's religious beliefs on this matter could be ever taken as grounds for allegation of misconduct. He describes his suspension as unreasonable, unjust, unfair. He added, 
there has been a dumbing down of the seriousness of suspension. It is a serious step. It has tarnished my good character and my good name, particularly in the profession of a teacher, where one is so close to a large number of members of the local community, it leaves a stain uh, on what has been, for me, an unblemished teaching record. Mr Burke said he had a wonderful relationship with his students who knew him as a man of professed morals and convictions. So this is absolutely terrible, this whole story. And I would like to add that Enoch's courage and integrity is inspiring. And I would hope that he gives courage to other teachers to stay true to their beliefs and not be, not be told what they, what they have to abide by these crazy transgender ideologies. It's, it's mad. The whole school is, is a Christian school. So um, that's, uh, yeah, that's pretty unbelievable. Um, and then I was going to move on to the new schools bill, um, as it was due to have its third reading on the 14th of September, but it has been postponed. I know many parents are breathing a sigh of relief to hear this, but it's only been postponed. Liz Truss and her team are reviewing all current legislation, including the new schools bill. Um, a tweet last week from uh, Defend Me, Digital Me read, going, going, everyone hoping the schools bill will be gone. A car crash and an abomination that landed like a lump of kryptonite. And that was the government's own conservative peers and edu ex-education minister had what they had to say about it. So I wanted to look at what Liz has had to say, say about education in the past. Um, and 10 years ago, there was an article in The Guardian. Uh, the, ch the child care minister at the time, Elizabeth Truss, had criticised chaotic nurseries for failing to prepare children for school life. The Tory minister said she had seen too many chaotic settings where children run were running around. We are talking about two-year-olds here, heaven forbid it, two-year-olds running around and not sitting like little robots on a carpet. Um, she said that allowing unruly behaviour in nurseries, children are unable to sit still by the time they get to primary school, bearing in mind they are still only four when they get to primary school. We want children to learn to listen to a teacher, learn to respect an instruction so that they are ready for school. So this isn't very encouraging um, for me. Um, oh, well, I'm kidding you. I don't understand what your problem is with that, because if they don't learn at the age of two, three and four, then when they get the age of 20, 30 and 40, how are they going to know they've got to wear a mask? Exactly. They're not going to know that they don't question authority. They just they just sit there and take it. Absolutely. Um, but I did I did have a little look at the education uh, support for education meeting in 2012, and it reads much more encouraging for the new schools bill if she still has the same uh, point of view. So I, I'll just read a little bit of it. Um, Liz Truss, I think that the balance at the moment is roughly speaking around the right place. So I think that we give home educators considerable freedom. We also give them responsibility to provide a suitable education for their children. We do not ask them to register. We do not have undue interference, which I would be in favour of. So that's really encouraging. Um, she's then asked, um, uh, you have talked about not interfering. Uh, that is certainly something I think those who go who go down the home educating route would applaud. But what about registration? Um, and she comes back with, this is obviously a tricky balancing exercise. Certainly from hearing the bits of evidence from local authorities that I did, it seemed to be their general view that it was better for local authorities to cooperate with parents rather than being seen to be chased after, chasing after parents and judging parents. So I am in favour of cooperation relationship, cooperative relationship with local authorities and schools. And I think 
uh, that giving additional powers to, for registration would not necessarily promote that cooperation, which I think is increasing, certainly with the local authorities that I have been in front of, the, uh, that have been in front of the committee today. Um, she goes on to say that she thinks uh, uh, on balance, the system that we have at the moment is the right division between responsibilities, uh, because they are saying here, uh, is parents uh, have parents have taken the responsibility to educate their children at home? That is their responsibility. It is not the local authority's responsibility. The local author authority clearly has the responsibility to identify children in the area that are of school age, uh, that are not registered as pupils at school, and are not receiving a suitable education. If they fear or indeed identify where that is not the case, they have their duty to follow it up. But as to the balance between freedom and tracking or keeping up with people, I think we are roughly in the right position. And given that there is no evidence that home education produces worse outcomes than the other forms of education, I do not see a substantial reason at this stage to change that. Um, it goes on, I won't read all of it, but it's, it's, it's a little bit more encouraging to hear her speaking like that, but that was a good 10 years ago. So we'll just have to wait and see um, whether she's still got that point of view or whether she can be uh, persuaded to, to follow the, the new schools bill and, and have that register, which is going to be um, an absolute nightmare for all of us. Um, and then I wanted to finish with uh, the new uh, fifth education secretary, another person who has been put in power with no experience whatsoever in education. Uh, Kit Malthouse is an accountant, um, as I said, zero education experience. Um, he voted against giving free school meals and he voted for cutting benefits for disabled people. So. We'll probably get more of the same. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's us. Uh, well, thank you for keeping us focused on, on this aspect because uh, it does seem to me that uh, if you're going to keep your children safe from the system, home education has got to be a very good start to doing that. Yeah. Okay. Does that bring us that to the does, end? That does, yes. It does. Okay. We're, we're going to say a fascinating uh, UK column news today. Um, we're going to say to the audience out there that are watching uh, what's happening with the ceremonial around the death of the Queen and what's happening with our new King. Have a think about what we are being told. Have a think about who are pulling this, the uh, levers of power, enabling this succession to happen in the way it is. And uh, of course, have a think about uh, what the new King is saying versus uh, what possibly he's thinking. Um, but uh, there's a lot to debate and we'll do that over the coming days and we will dig deeper into what's happening in Ukraine. I'm sure we'll start that on Extra in a few minutes time. Well, we will for those who are able to join us. But for our audience in UK and overseas, uh, thank you very much for joining us and uh, we will be back. Wednesday. Wednesday. Got there in the end. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye.